Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while in motion with Stitcher. It's a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher right now, you have a chance to win some free money. Downloading is quick and easy. It takes just a few seconds. You just go to Stitcher.com or you can find it in the App Store. You download it. And then when you register in the promo code box, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of Other People will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or do it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, whatever you got. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you sign up. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening on the periphery. This is also strangely global. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in wherever you happen to be here on planet Earth. Uh, It's good to be with you. I'm sitting here. I'm in good health. I do not have a case of uh, the cancer. For those of you who were listening to the previous episode, it was indeed a false alarm and yet another reminder to never Google anything health-related. Today's guest is Maria Semple. Uh, For 15 years, she was a very successful television writer. She wrote on a bunch of hit shows, including Beverly Hills 90210, Ellen, Mad About You, uh, and the much-beloved Arrested Development. And then in 2008, she published her first novel, the critically acclaimed This One Is Mine. And now, uh, to perhaps even greater acclaim, she has published a second novel, which is called Where'd You Go, Bernadette. It is available from Little Brown and Company. The official pub date is August 14th, 2012. You can buy the book online. You can buy it in bookstores. Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. I should mention uh, that Where'd You Go, Bernadette was the July selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, for those of you who are in the book club who are listening to this program, thank you very much uh, for being here. 
and for being a member. For those of you who aren't aware, The Nervous Breakdown is my online culture magazine uh, slash literary community. And uh, it, it's, uh, it can be found online at thenervousbreakdown.com. Uh, if you join the book club for only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Uh, that's less than the cost of a book. That's less than the cost of one movie ticket. Uh, it's a great deal. And as an added bonus, I interview the book club authors right here on this program. So you can read and then listen or listen uh, and then read whatever you like. And uh, if you do that, if you join the club, uh, it helps the cause significantly. It helps me keep this program going. It helps me keep uh, the nervous breakdown online. It helps to perpetuate book culture. So if you have 10 bucks a month to spare and you want to join up, just head on over to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar, and away you go. It's that easy. A book a month. Uh, what's better than that? And if you can't do that, if your budget will not allow, uh, here's a quick way that's free uh, to give the show a boost. Uh, and it involves iTunes ratings uh, and reviews over at iTunes. I've been learning a little bit about this, uh, just you know, in, uh, investigating the way that it works. And here's the thing. If you like this show, uh, you should subscribe, first of all, over at iTunes. If you haven't done that already, it's free. It's easy. doesn't cost a dime. Uh, new episodes will automatically download to your iTunes. And uh, you know, once you've done that, or even if you haven't done that, if you have just two minutes to spare, go over to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. Give it a good rating. Give it a nice review. Uh, the, here's the thing. The more good ratings and reviews that the show gets, the more exposure it gets in the iTunes universe. That's how it happens, uh, which means more people will find out about it and more people will listen. So it's a simple, free way to help out, and I would greatly appreciate the assist. Okay? Okay. So that's it. That's my pitch. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Time to get things rolling. Uh, very excited to have Maria Semple here on the program today. Uh, here she is, folks. Her latest novel is called Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And this is the two of us in conversation. Well, we um, had heard from somebody who was a huge world traveler and has gone more places. He's an environmentalist and he's been everywhere. And he said to us the best place he'd ever been on the planet was Antarctica. And we took it really seriously and signed up for um, 
a trip there and it uh, you you sign up for it about a year in advance because it you know the it's hard to get space um to go on a ship down there and so um my boyfriend and my daughter and I went and uh it was so it was so haunting and it was definitely the best place I've ever been and it's a place that just still really lives inside of me and um it was just so stark and there was no green. That was really the trippy thing about it is just how, how devoid of, of what, what you, what, what you associate life looking like, which is greenery, you know, and vines and things growing. And there was none of that, but at the same time, it was just teeming with life, you know, with the penguins and the, the whales and the seals. And it was just, it was great. And, and okay, so you had to take a boat. So you, you fly to South America and then you take a boat down to... From, from Ushuaia, from Tierra del Fuego, yes. And so that's where the boat leaves from. And this was a boat, the National Geographic Explorer, which is a really great boat, an icebreaker. And so it takes about two days to cross the Drake Passage, which um, I was very afraid of, which, which I write about in my book. That's all very autobiographical about just freaking out about just that it it's it, it brings well seasoned sailors to their knees you know in terms of just the heights of the waves and just the seasickness it's like everyone who goes to antarctica before they talk about penguins or anything they talk about just how horrible it was crossing the drake passage and how much they vomited and just it, it, it so i was i i'm one of these people who gets really badly seasick i can't even ride in the passenger seat of a car you know and so i was really freaking out about it and so um it it ended up actually on the way there not being that bad on the way there on the way back it was really terrible but so you spend two days crossing the drake passage um and then you during that time, you know, it's all very kind of black water and, and, uh, nothing in sight. And, um, they, they, you're on the ship and you, you have lectures and stuff and they show happy feet and that type of thing, you know, to get you pumped up, you know, <laughs> to, to, to uh, see some penguins. And then, um, and then the really cool thing is you just start then seeing chunks of ice float by and it's it's just really spooky and weird you know like uh, this harbinger of things to come so so uh so so it's two days there and then we were in uh, tourists and the boats that that i was on was just a tourist boat go on this little part which is the antarctica uh the antarctic peninsula and so you just kind of um, you you go to a lot of places on land. You know, you take little zodiacs from the boat on the land. But also, I mean, the coolest part was just like breaking into the ice. The the ship is literally an icebreaker, and this part of the sea called the Weddell Sea, where you just kind of break through the ice. And in fact, we were, you know, very um, I'd say within a mile of where Shackleton's ship became. You know. Um, fixed in the ice and, and, and went down. And so that was really cool just cause, cause also you go down there and you get really, really into Ernest Shackleton, you know, when you're down there and, and you read Endeavor and every, you know, you, it, it's, it's the history of it is really cool with all the, uh, the polar explorers, you know? And so you really do feel like you understand this part of history. Well, and it, it just, and just to back up a little bit, when you say that this ship is an icebreaker and that it's breaking ice, like what, uh, mechanically happens there? Like, wh- what does this boat do that breaks the ice? See, I don't even think it does. I mean, I don't know. Just maybe it's reinforced steel or something that's particularly 
strong and it just seems to ram through. I mean, you, you, it, it, it's, um, there's all these different types of ice, which is what you learn down there. And there's, um, fast ice, which is, is the frozen sea. And that's what you're breaking through. It's not that thick. It's not like glaciers or anything, but you kind of break through and, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I think maybe just motors or something on the ship that's making you break through. But the the captain knows the drill. You know, he's not going to get you so far and then that you can't get out or anything. But but you're and and so so there's that type of 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 ice that you kind of break into and then and then and then some intrepid you know uh, low paid employee has to then get off the boat at that point to make sure that it's safe for all of us. To- to get off at that point and so you know and so then and then that's really fun then you get to walk on these vast you know deserts of ice and then every now and then there's just some big crazy blue glacier popping up out of it you know that's just bright blue and almost glowing you know and that's that's really cool and then and then also for for most of it though you're actually kind of going through um I think it's I think it's actually just called sea ice or something, which is just like just chunks of ice everywhere. It's almost like you're in a in a cocktail glass of crushed ice or something, and you just hear this clink 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 all the time of just the of just the little pieces of ice, um, you know, clinking against the side of the ship. So that also is really cool. Well, it's it sounds like almost extraterrestrial. You know what I'm saying? It's like as far as like traveling on Earth, this is this. Close as you can come to traveling on Earth, but feeling like you're you're leaving. <laughs> it sounds like. well. That's well. It's it's funny you say that because um, in the net on the we we'd missed by one um, by one date of travel. Um, Buzz Aldrin being on the ship with us, and and that was really that would have been so cool, but it just didn't work out with our schedule to be there with Buzz Aldrin um, because it really was like being on the moon, and in fact. When we got off at Palmer Station, um, we saw that that this is a, an American research. It's an American research station down there, and a lot of people have come to visit. But the the person they seemed to be most excited about was Neil Armstrong, who had just been there the year before, and everybody got their picture taken with Neil Armstrong, and he was actually on our boat. The the um, National Geographic Explorer, and I was talking to some of the guys there, and I was saying. Did you ask him if it was like the moon? (laughs) Yeah, we asked him if it was like the moon, and he said it was a lot like the moon. So also because the rocks are, I mean, it's all just so kind of black moon rocky, you know. It's, it's, there's nothing, uh, I I guess there is maybe one thing green growing there, but it's like a tenth of an inch high, and it's just some kind of lichen that you never even see. So it's just like there's no indication of life when you're on the, the rocks themselves, and and which is why it does seem so spooky. Okay, so now did you go there? Uh, you know, as a as you know, obviously it was a vacation of sorts and like a travel adventure. But was it also research for the book, or did this precede? Uh, you know, you starting to write the book. Well, you know, so so I we were going to go anyway, and then I think I'd had my I'd had a character in mind, and I think I was just kind of. Um, I think around October, I'm, I, I started writing the book, and I knew 
a, a couple things I wanted to do with the book, but then knowing that we were going down to Antarctica in a couple months, we went in December, I, I, it really informed like where I was thinking of going with the book, you know, I mean, like quite literally to Antarctica, but also I, I just kind of gave myself a place to go. Like I thought, okay, I'm going to try to aim for Antarctica and not necessarily the end of the book, but just at some point I thought this should factor in because um, it was just kind of handed to me on a tray, you know, as a writer. And, 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 and what I find is that um, I, I have like a really terrible memory, but, but if I'm in this kind of process of writing, th- then it's a really good, good time for me to absorb like a ton of information, you know? And so, so when I was down there, I just kind of kept my mind open and just thought, how could this family I'm writing about like connect somehow with Antarctica, you know, like how is this going to work in? And so I just, I took notes and I talked to some people. I I ended up talking to a lot of the scientists down there who I met. And so I just kind of figured it out and the kind of device by which um, this kind of this, I mean, not to give too much away in the book, but, but this, there were a couple of very concrete plot turns that I got out of um, our time down there. And so that, that was really good. So, yeah, so I think you, I just, um, I realized, wow, no one, no one gets to go to Antarctica. And so I better just grab it for my book. You know, it'll just, if, if nothing else, it'll uh, have Antarctic in it. (laughs) Well, no, I was going to say that's a, that's a rare human experience. Like, you know, I, I, it, it, the the question that popped into my brain when you, when you mentioned that earlier is, is that, I wonder how many people, period, have been to Antarctica, you know, Antarctica, and it can't be that many in human history, right? I mean, it, it's very few, and you know, more and more recently because of these cruise ships that are going down there, and there may be 150 um, passengers on them. There, it's not like these huge cruise ships, no. But but it, the, the numbers are starting to get up there. Um, but no, it's very few people. And if I could remember a number for the life of me, I would be able to tell you the number because they told us. Oh, they did. <laughs> but I'm okay. they, they yeah, they, they seem to know how many had have been down there, and it was it was a, a it really made you realize that you're hardly ever going to come across anyone in your life who's been to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, well, and you said you went down in December, and that caught me too until I remembered the uh, the hemispheres. So you're down there in their summer. Exactly. You're down. Yes. And so what kind of what what kind of weather were you dealing with? Well, it wasn't that terrible. It was, um, you know, it was uh, cold, certainly, but not the most bitter cold in the whole world. And and it was the sun was up uh, 24 hours a day. That was really the crazy thing about it. And and, and that also just added this otherworldliness of just, you know, we um, I got really into this card game um, with my boyfriend and we would. Um, be playing it and it would just time would pass and suddenly it would be 3.30 in the morning and we would just be in our dark glasses in a lounge playing this card game without any indication that it was night or anything and uh and so so it 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 was very sunny at times but maybe it got as as warm as 50 degrees or something that's not so bad that's actually no it wasn't terrible yeah that's kind of nice but and then and yeah it, and so how much of the ice melts? I guess that night it gets cold enough to, to freeze it back up again, so it stays. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, it melts a lot in the summer and then really closes up in the winter. And that was, um, you know, and, and when you learn about the, the, uh, the explorers, the people who went down there, that was always part of their 
it was very important for them to kind of hit it at exactly the right time of year because you can actually like go way, way deeper into Antarctica, you know, um, and into where the part they wanted to go in order to, to try to make the pole. Um, because, uh, cause it was the ice conditions really can change radically and it's, you know, hundreds of miles you can, you can, um, go on ice in, in the right, in the right temperature. Did you go to the South Pole? No, no, no. You can't go to the South Pole. Oh, no, that's, that's, yeah, no, the South Pole is a whole other world. And I would love to go to the South Pole, but that is really deep inland and it's really high up and they really don't let, um, people get there. And, and that is, and I think the South Pole is probably when somebody pictures Antarctica, you know, other than like all the penguins frolicking and, and those images, the really, bitter, horrible um, images of, of Antarctica are, would be the South Pole. You know, it's just winds constantly. It, it's, you know, never gets above 20 below zero or something like that. And it's, uh, it's, it's I want to say 12,000 feet or, or maybe even higher. It's just really, really high up. So the, there's not a lot of oxygen. And um, and the only way to get there is by these planes that the government brings in and out of there. Oh, okay. it, it's almost kind of, yeah. I mean, I guess that there'll be some, there'll some frequency year probably will snowshoe there, but you just have to, those, <laughs> those people are outliers. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and so, okay. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, I, forgive me for asking so many questions, but it's just, I, I don't, I, you're the first person I've ever spoken with who's gone to Antarctica. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, when you get there, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, I know there is some civilization, you know, there's a town and I'm, uh, forgive me for forgetting the name of it, but there's some sort oh, of... Oh, McMurdo. Well, okay, yeah. so so, the, the, so there's a there's a great book called Cold Dead Place um, that's about McMurdo Station, which is, is if anything like a town, but we weren't there. So that that's in the other side of Antarctica. And that is just... Uh, you know, um, Werner Herzog uh, made a documentary about yeah, Antarctica. I, I saw that. Right? And so, yeah, okay, no, he really was not a fan of McMurdo. He was pretty hilarious about it. And it, it, he, I mean, not that it, you wouldn't have come to your own conclusion that it was just a miserable place, but he particularly <laughs> seemed to have scorn. Well, and, uh, and when, when, he, when he hates something, it's sort of awesome in his narration. It's super awesome. No, it's so... <laughs> Oh, it's so great! No, there's there's uh, there's nothing better than than him hating something. We I remember we were in a uh, uh, we 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 used to go to the Telluride Film Festival all the time, and he was there in the audience, and I was uh, he always um, not not only did he jump out at me just because he was Werner Herzog, and so you have to be just ultimately fascinated with everything he does but he he would always just boo at the end of movies which i just been <laughs> which i think is like a european thing and it's acceptable just to boo in the movies but yeah. he'd been going to tell you right for like 25 years straight and somehow had had not picked up uh uh that that you you shouldn't just be the only buddy sitting there <laughs> sitting there booing at the end of the movie with the filmmakers <laughs> No, he's really awesome. Um, but so, yeah, so, so, so there's McMurdo and, and, and we weren't there at all. And that's just like, it's like a town of containers or something, you know, yeah. I think they live in containers or something. I mean, practically, but it's really awful. And, uh, I, I was this book, cold dead place. That's really awesome. I can't remember who 
wrote it, but um, I, I, I saw that HBO was making a series out of it starring James Gandolfini, which seemed very interesting, just about the deviants who end up down in Antarctica at McMurdo Station. But so, but so, okay, so we weren't there at all, and we just were on this ship, and we there was no civilization where where we were, um, other than these little um, kind of ex, ex, uh, there was some. Uh, ruins of um, explorers' huts and things um, down that we saw, and then there was a little place called Port Lockroy, which was a British station that they set up during World War II. That they there's even though it's 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 now just a gift shop run by these um, like sweet girls, they they still are kind of mysterious about what happened down there and why they needed to be down in Antarctica, the British during World War II. But that so 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 that's cute. So you go down there, and then we were lucky enough to also go to this um, research station called Palmer Station, which is much smaller than McMurdo. And maybe McMurdo, there's a thousand people there, and at Palmer, there's about forty. And so that that also is kind of a a, a weird. Um, kind of corrugated tin little city, you know, um, and it's, it's science scientists who go down there and it's lots of, um, you know, it takes years and you have to write, you know, these grant proposals and it's a really, really big deal to get down there, you know? Hmm. Well, you know, I guess, I, I guess the next, uh, the next place to go is, uh, Seattle and yes, <laughs> That's the other city or the other place that figures, uh, you know, largely into where'd you go, Bernadette. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to know about the origins uh, of the novel and not only um, broadly, but for you specifically as a writer. Like, how do things begin for you? Like, did this, you know, do you start with a character? Do you start with a title? Do you start with a place? Like, what was it that triggered this one for you? Well, it, what, what, what triggered it was was really... Not liking Seattle, actually. Speaking of Seattle, is it is it what what triggered it was that um, was that we had moved to Seattle, and this was about three and a half years ago. We moved there. Is um, we moved from L.A. Um, which is with where our I, which daughter, is where I, which is where I am now with a daughter. So, like, I'm very interested in this. Right. Know? Okay. So, so we're one of these people who got out, you know, and uh, people. We still go back to LA, and people just marvel at us. Like, I can't believe you did it, you know, because everyone's talking about it. All anyone wants to do is quit and move away, you know, and they awk like, oh, you know, it, and 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 everybody down there has this like, oh, I would if only dot, 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 you know, and everyone right. has like a reason why they can't do it. And so we did it. And so, um, and we picked Seattle really just totally randomly, you know, we just had been up here and we liked it. And um, just on a weekend, you know, like we, we liked it. It wasn't like we had that much information about it, but it seemed like a good enough place as any. And so, so we moved up here and and then when I got here I just ended up really not liking it and I felt like I, I, I now that I have some hindsight, which I certainly did not have, you know, at the time that the perspective, but I, I think that, that the hindsight is that when you're in your forties you usually don't just like pick up and move somewhere with no job to go to and no kind of context for your life. You know, the last time I moved anywhere, I was in my 20s and you show up and you everyone's just hanging out and you make a lot of friends and everyone's kind of this was in LA and everyone was starting in the 
movie business or TV business together and you just made a lot of friends very easily, you know? And so when we moved up to Seattle, I felt like I just didn't get the people and I, I felt like I didn't like them and I felt like they didn't like me and which, which now I will take responsibility for because I, I didn't like them first. And so I <laughs> just doing, I think, the, the normal human reaction to someone who moves up from L.A. and doesn't like them. But, uh, but so anyway, I was just, it was a lot of things. I, I had, didn't have a career anymore, and I um, was in this new place, and I didn't know anybody, and I felt like I, I, people just kind of – there was always this one kind of response that I seemed to get from everyone, which was, hey, maybe you should go easy on the caffeine or something, you know, and I just, and I don't think I'm that intense, but apparently I'm just really intense, you know, <laughs> and I, I never really got that in, in, in LA or in New York or I, I don't know. And, and, and in fact, a lot of people who I met just in a very puzzled way asked me if I was from New York, which I always thought was a, a, which is was a, a veiled anti-Semitic um, question, but apparently <laughs> it's not. In this case, it just meant you seem you, you have like really intense energy, and I don't think I like you. But so anyway, so when I was up here, feeling just like I was just in a really really bad self-pitying place, and and then I also didn't like anyone. So it was just this really bad combination of things, and and at the at as as bad as it was, I also had the perspective to realize that it was like kind of hilarious that I'd moved to a city and then blamed the city for all of my problems. I thought like the the writer in me was able to have enough perspective. And so I thought, oh, that now see that I think it just made me laugh just inherently. I just thought, OK, I like that. That's funny. Someone who blames um, Seattle for like being stuck creatively, you know, which is what. <laughs> I felt I was, and and so then I thought, okay, I'll um, I'll turn, uh, I'll make that into a character, and so then I just kind of started building from there. You know, that was my starting point, and then you just kind of construct around that. Well, and then what about the 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 culture of Seattle? Because I feel like, uh, you know, most people, and you know, possibly this has something to do with the entertainment industry, but like I think people have context when it comes to places like Los Angeles and New York because we see them featured so frequently uh, on television and in the movies. But when, when it comes to Seattle, like how do you characterize the culture there? And, and, and you know, coming in as an outsider, um, you know, like you said, in your 40s and suddenly landing there, like what was your perception of it? What was your perception of the place and its people? See, see my, my main perception was that it was just incredibly provincial, you know, is, is what I like kind of couldn't believe is I felt like I couldn't believe the number of people I'd met who were were born here, who'd gone to college here, and were here raising families, you know, often in the same neighborhoods, you know, and, and I was, and as again, coming from New York and LA, you never meet people like that, you know, everyone's from somewhere, and there's, I, I, I was very surprised by that, and so that, that was the first thing that kind of made me unsettled was just keep hearing that story kind of over and over, you know, and then, well, and, and people, well, I was just going to say, like when you, when you move into a place where everybody's been there forever, uh, it makes it harder to integrate too, or it, it, it make, it's more of a challenge, I think, because everybody there has existing relationships and all these deep roots. And here you are sort of floating in from Los Angeles, you know, it's yeah, exactly a place that they, that they don't like 
already. And apparently there was this whole history, which, which I wasn't aware of, but there was a whole history of people from L.A. moving to Seattle because it was like a good had a high lifestyle index or something like this. And again, I, I and, and so, and so, or, or even if that didn't happen, people, people here think that it did happen and then they hate you for it, you know? And so that there's a, that's a big narrative that the people from Seattle tell themselves and each other is that like horrible people from LA moved up here and they're going to ruin our city, you know? So, and I, I haven't, I, I keep meaning to ask someone if that really happened or to get a little more concrete with me about it than well, that no. because there does seem to be some kind of belief that that, that happened. And I maybe it was in the 80s or the beginning of the dot-com thing is, is when exactly it happened, or in the night, I guess that would be the 90s, you know, uh, is, is, is when it happened. But, but so I, you know, I felt like, I felt like the people were very provincial and and everyone really keeps to themselves here in in a way that that, that it's very hard not to take personally when you first get here, you know, because I, I was very social and we always had a ton of parties and I was always like really connecting people and I was a real connector and that was how I went through life and to come here and to feel like you hit a wall um and that that doesn't it 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 just doesn't go over and nobody does it and it's not like part of the culture and there's no dinner parties or or um it it's it's just it's really different now now I will say in in Seattle's defense now that it's almost 4 years we've been here we have turned into those people who never leave never want to know anybody new we've just totally hunkered down and like Seattle has, has like played its it's spooky magic on us, you know, and we are, uh, we have now become true Seattle people. Oh, so you're, okay, so you've, you've, you've kind of flipped, you've come all the way around on it. Yeah, I've come all the way around and I feel like we just want to stay home and keep to ourselves and, and any, in LA, if an invitation would come in, I'd be, oh, hey, should we go to this? And it just now... It just doesn't occur to me to go to things and, and things that would be really fun. Also, it's not even the quality of the things we're invited to because now we know people here and we're friends with people and we really have met people we really like. But there's this weird um, malaise that, that comes over everyone where all that being said, you still don't want to see them. <laughs> But does it have anything to do with the weather, or what? What is it? You think? No, I. You know, it, it's a. It's a mis. See, the weather. I love the weather. I think the weather is great, and I. I. It, it is something that I've never been able to figure out why nobody wants to do anything, and, and, and I. It might be the weather for them because I really have a very different. I. I, I as I say, love the weather, and everyone who lives here doesn't seem to like the weather, which I don't really understand because there's a lot of places they could move if the weather really is that bad. But I, the weather doesn't affect me that way. But it, you know, it might affect other people that way. Let me just say, uh, it, it might make them just kind of want to stay in. But I, you know, I, I really can't account for it. I cannot account for why people just like to stay home here. Yeah. Well, and so when you when you came around socially or like I guess not socially uh entirely, but when you came around with Seattle and you started to uh accept it or, you know, grow into it or whatever, you know, whatever the phrasing might be, 
did that it sounds like then your your creative uh you know work also took a turn for the better is that correct like did the two well, well no actually there? actually it was the opposite that 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 my book came from all of the pain and hating seattle and in fact and, and and I recognized that it was funny, you know, that, that like how much this woman hated Seattle. And as I was writing it, you know, I, I, I think another reason why I thought about the character was because I would kind of drive around and hate Seattle so much in my head. And I would kind of come up with funny lines about it and funny observations about how awful Seattle was. But I had like nobody to talk to about it because my boyfriend, meanwhile, loved Seattle. You know, that we moved up there. He loved it from the beginning. And it's not like you can like, you know, try to make friends with people based on, hey, listen to this really awful one-liner I came up with about your shitty city that you love so much for no fucking reason. You know, you can't, you can't like connect with people that way, but I realized the only kind of good work I was doing creatively was not liking Seattle, you know, and that was like the only thing that was giving me that was like, had that some kind of energy. And it was funny because as I was, um, as I was writing it, I actually started, as I was writing the book, then I actually started to really like Seattle and, and, and I would go back to sections of the book and they would seem very foreign to me. But at the, and anytime I actually started to like Seattle, there was this kind of critical point towards the, as I was finishing the book, I just thought like, I got to put that out of my head. I can't like Seattle yet. You know, I need to finish my first draft before I like Seattle because that's like where, where all this is coming from, you know? You must maintain your hatred for just a little Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I did, you know, and so I did, which was good. But, but, but you know, by, by the end of the book, I mean, there's a lot of I, – and, and then what was – you know, because I, I think what it is is I realized that, that, that the hatred of it had a lot of energy to it, and it was original and, and interesting, and I felt like the pro-Seattle stuff that also I wanted to represent, you know, I felt like that, that – that's not going to dissipate. Like I can get that from anywhere, you know, but this weird take on Seattle was, was like very unique to me. And it was, and I had like a, a clock on it, you know? So I had to just like put it down as quickly as I could. Yeah. And then like, you know, the other uh, obvious aspect of the whole thing is satire and, you know, yes. reading the book, it's like a, it's, it's like this, uh, uh like perfect skewering, uh, of bourgeois life in Seattle, you know, Microsoft, uh, like that. There are so many things that you like, like ticked off and they could be these little tiny details, you know, like, uh, getting, you know, groceries at the Pike's place market and, uh, the personal assistant in India, like, <laughs> right. you know, I just, I found so many of these things, they resonated somehow, um, from a cultural perspective. And I'm just curious to know, um, I don't know. Like, I, part of me is wondering: Do you have a personal assistant in India? Please tell me you do. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't that be awesome? No, I don't. But I wish I did. Did you read that, about that's that? Really... Did you read about that in the four-hour work week? Have you? Have you? No. No, you didn't. Okay, because that's where. I... What was? Is do they do they talk about that? Oh yeah, it's all about how to like you know maximize your time, and you can get like a personal assistant for like you know three dollars an hour to like handle all of the bullshit in your life. And oh my gosh, no, that's too funny. No, no, I didn't know. I, I as far as as far as I knew, I kind of made that up um just just uh but but no no that, that that would be good and i don't think the people here do have that i mean in fact people here are they they don't have assistance at all they don't have maids they don't have assistance you know when i i came from la and uh you know it's like housewives have personal assistance it's like everyone there has personal assistance i was just in new york last week and i was at this party and these 
women were um it, it was it was like a cold drink of water because it was just these like rich women talking about their personal assistants when they had no jobs or anything. And I was like, my kind of people, <laughs> personal assistants, but no, I didn't have one. And I had one in LA. I didn't have one in Seattle, but I, I, I thought that I, I was kind of in a little bit of a, of, I, I wanted this woman to have social anxiety and for not like to not like people. But then again, it was, it was that same issue of who is she talking to and who is she telling this to you know, you can't just, if she has a friend, then it's like all the air gets leaked out, you know? So I thought the idea of oversharing with an assistant would be really funny. Um, and just some poor long suffering assistant who has to listen to this. And then I thought it would be virtual because she doesn't, I don't think she likes people enough to have an assistant in her life. Like she wouldn't be able to handle it, you know? So it would have to be an internet one. um, Well, that's, that's another aspect of the book that, that interests me so much is that so much of it is epistolary, and, you know, it, it reflects the way people interact today. It felt so natural. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, uh, all I mean. These, all these email exchanges and letters back and forth and, you know, it, that, that dominates much of the book. And mm-hmm. that, that's the, mm-hmm. I, think that all, I think that reflects accurately the way people interact uh, to a large extent these days, especially writers, because so many of us are sitting in front of our computers all day long. And, you know, your, your interaction with people is often limited to email exchanges and instant messaging and that kind of thing, you know. That's right. That's right. And you're not, and you're not doing the one-on-one thing. Well, you know, going back to the satire thing, just because it's kind of, um, it's like I, and, and I, I don't mean this in a disingenuous way, but I, I don't even know what satire is. Like I, I actually, and, and that you say satire, I mean, what, what do you, what to you is satire? Like, cause I don't consider myself a satirist and I, I don't know why particularly, uh, maybe I'm just wrong about it. Maybe I am, but I would think you'd have to know you were, if you, you'd have to know that going into it. I mean, can you accidentally write satire? I don't. Yeah, I don't think I mean, so. But well, I mean, what what do you think it is? Uh, well, no, I know it's interesting. I think like there are just so many like little small flourishes, you know, like kind of uh, uh, like the little details of every. No, but I'm not. I know I'm not fishing for compliments. I'm just saying generally for you, like generally, what what is what do you what do you consider satire in on the broader sense? Is it like skewering society or? Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I was driving at. I mean it's like I guess right. I guess you're writing you're writing. Uh, fiction that has a comedic element to it. I mean, there, you know, it's a- right. And that's funny. Like I, I get that. I mean, like I know that I'm funny and I'm trying to be funny, but this idea of like social satire, you know, that, 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 and you've said that and other people have said that, Oh, it's a satire, a modern satire. And I just think, Oh, is it? I mean, I wouldn't, I certainly didn't intend that. And I don't think I like satire particularly, you know, because I don't think I read it or, I don't know. I guess you read satire. Do you watch it? I, I I don't know. But but I feel like I'm interested in like characters and specific stuff, and that I guess in the course of that, society gets in the crosshairs. You know what I mean? But it's it's interesting that I I personally don't don't feel um, interested in like taking down society. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, I think maybe like the the word that like popped into my head as you were as you were talking was like just observant, you know, like clearly yeah. clearly you're observing your surroundings in Seattle, and clearly you're paying attention to the culture to some extent, you know. Right, and 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 you and you want it to be real. I mean, I you know is 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 that's you know that that um, 
that some that that uh, uh, there's a writing teacher, a guy named Stephen Koch, I think he pronounces his name. He, he wrote a book, a modern library book on on writing fiction, and uh, it's a really really good book. I can't. Uh, it's called maybe the modern library's book on fiction writing or something. But this guy wrote it. But he he said that um, that that what what you need to do is just sell everything with details, you know, and that you have to like you 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 have to get it you have to get people to believe what you're writing and the way to do that is with details, you know? And I mean, he's not the only one who said it, but he, it, he just writes about it really well in that book. And so I think that, that I, I, I have certainly have an eye for, for, for details. And I also understand how important it is to kind of convince the reader that things are real, you know, is you, you have to kind of um support the stuff with details. And so I think that that, 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 and then in the course of that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I often find myself when I'm writing, most of writing is just looking out the window and trying to really picture what would really, really happen. Like what would be the true reality of that situation? And if you're really thinking about that, it probably involves these, just the stuff of life, you know, and I, and I'm not afraid of the stuff of life. I mean, I think a lot of people don't want, plot turns to be around like, oh, um, it's said on Google Maps that this was not a one-way street, but it is a one-way street. You know, that just like that annoying stuff of life, like to me, that's where the gold comes from in writing, you know? Sure. Well, and you know, the other but, thing about it, uh, you know, with regard to the whole satire thing is that like, like you were saying earlier, you know, the book was born at least partially out of feelings of frustration with Seattle and maybe, and then, right. then you also have a comedic temperament. Um, or is that fair to say? I would say that's yeah. Oh, very much so. Very so, much so. So I mean, maybe it's a combination of those two things. And they always say like you know people with comedic temperaments are like what disappointed idealists, and then you have this place, and so you know then you're just you know like you, like I said, you're paying attention, and maybe out of that accidentally something satirical, like some you know there's some element of satire to the comedy. Right, right. That exactly. Yeah, that 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 comes out of it. Yeah, because I don't. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's um. I, I mean, I guess, yeah, taking on society and that kind of satirical thing, I feel like it's all pretty obvious, you know, um, if, if you have your eyes open, you've, you've hopefully thought of it already. I guess that's my take on it. I don't need someone to point it out to me. Well, yeah, you know, if you, and you have your eyes open, you, you've seen it. Well, and you don't, you also, it doesn't seem like, you know, working from a, like a, you know, from a place of like total anger is necessarily productive either, you know, and I think a lot of times, or maybe that's kind of what you're saying is that like people who are set, you know, satirizing in this really angry way, like maybe that's not your style. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really don't think it's productive. I mean, I think, I think, you know, it's a, um, I, I think that it's, it's a bit of a, um, I think when you have anger about something, you get excited because you have some energy, you know, and, and definitely anger gives you energy. And when you're writing and you don't know what to write, and I think that a lot of people mistake that for like something to write about, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's an important kind of motivator, but you're also a craftsman. You know what I mean? And you're not just like spewing on the page, you know, that right. that's not that's not um, pleasant for anyone, and certainly on the, on the other end of it, you know. So, so, so you need to be you, and 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 that's and that's in fact um, what happened with me with my character is that with the Bernadette character, I was I was um, I think probably about I wrote about twenty pages in the first person, and she was so 
angry and so full of toxicity that I just had to stop the book. I just thought like, this is not sustainable. I mean, it, I, I could do it, but who would want to read this, you know? And it's just, I didn't really get why I was doing it, but I still really liked the character, you know? And so that's when I backed up and then I tried to write it in third person, but I couldn't get in her head. And that's where this epistolary thing came out of is because I realized I liked her, but you know, you, you know, that that's it, what you were saying about, Anger is is really good, but it can't just totally be written out of anger, you know. And then I think it wouldn't, because because I, I I think I think the uh, that the that the book and and also that I am a much lighter person, you know, and I'm a very positive enthusiast, you know. And so I felt like it 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 didn't it just felt really foreign to me to only write just rage, you know, for. <laughs> But, but, but it was good. The, the, rage, the rage, you know, gets you off your ass, which is good. That's right. That's right. And then what about uh, research? I mean, obviously, a lot of this stuff is just, co- just comes from kind of living there and breathing the air and observing. But, um, you know, like one particular uh, element, which is the Microsoft element, I wondered, like, how much did you have to actually dig in and research or how much of this was, uh, you know, uh, the kind of thing that that came out of conversations with friends in the area, you know, and, and how and how big of a uh, of a factor is Microsoft in Seattle culture? Like, is it really that like omnipresent? Do you feel it around you everywhere? <laughs> yes, you you definitely do. And see that that's you know to to, to go back to um, what I was saying about you want to write what's real. You know, is that that so my character? I wanted her husband. Before he was really formed, I just thought he would maybe be a tech guy or I wasn't quite sure. But then as I after a few months of living here and you look down the the parent handbook at school and half the people are at Microsoft dot com, you know, and it's not like a my MSN or it's not like a, an email address. It's like really at the company, you know, and you realize that and you just start putting connecting the dots where people just seem to be working at Microsoft or they've worked at Microsoft or they consult for Microsoft and it all kind of roads did in my observation of things. And again, this was, this was a, a private school, you know, and this is the world I was writing about, you know, and I'm sure there's huge, huge neighborhoods in Seattle where nobody works at Microsoft, but in, in this world where, where I was and in, in, in the same way in LA was all, you know, oh, that person's a, a costume costumer for Homeland. You know, it's, it was all TV shows, right, or movies. It was everyone, all roads kind of led back. I mean, maybe it, I, I think you can fairly say 50% of the parents in, in your kid's class would be in show business, and I think that would be really um really uh on on the modest side but i mean do, do you feel that way with the daughter do you feel like everyone's in show business yeah i mean i feel a little bit more removed from it just because i'm not like working at a studio day in and day out but uh, you know a lot of our friends do and uh, you know she's yeah just, your friends and, and is, is your daughter old enough to be in school well she's just starting in july so we're just, oh okay we're just... oh okay so you'll see you'll see what i mean that it's not like it's not like it's bruce well bruce springsteen's in, in music but i mean it's not like it's Tom Hanks's kids, or that dates me. I don't even know who the young movie stars are. <laughs> but whoever the movie stars are, it's not like it's there in your class, but it's all the kind of below-the-line people, you know, I feel, are the people who really send send the kids to the schools. But so in Microsoft, um, it, it is so is so 
omnipresent that that I just thought, you know, I got to have this guy work at Microsoft. It's like, I, you know, that's if, if I want to be real and true and true to this, this world that I'm writing about, there has to be a Microsoft element. And so I met um, I, I one day sitting at the ballet, there was this guy next to me who had this new kind of phone that I'd never seen before. And I just during intermission said, what is that phone? And he said, oh, it's a new Windows phone. And I said, oh, I didn't know the Windows had a phone. And he said, oh, yeah, well, we're going to introduce it in six months. This is the prototype. And so the, and immediately I went, oh, you work at Microsoft. And he said, yeah. And we started, he was an engineer, very, very high up engineer at Microsoft. And I said to him, um, I said, I said, oh, so do you work on the Windows phone? And he said, I own the Windows phone, which, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and so he's like one of the big people on the Windows phone, you know. And so I, we just ended up, he was a really smart guy. And then I said to him, I'm writing this novel and I want my guy to work at Microsoft and can I come out? And he said, sure. So I think the next day I was, I may or within two days, I was out there and I drove out to the campus um, and he showed me around and, uh, you know, showed me uh, where he worked and what the offices were like and the visitor center and um, the playing fields and all the different buildings. We drove around then to a couple different buildings and he showed me, you know, like, where, where's Bill Gates's office, you know, and stuff like, you know, just these basic questions that I had. And so at that point, I had a vague idea that I knew I want my guy, I wanted my father to be famous from giving a TED talk. So, and, and <laughs> that, see, that's, another, few... that's another detail. That's another detail that I found like really funny was just the, the TED talk is like a staple of our culture. Uh, there's something about yes, well. I know it's not funny, and it's. I, I actually think that I might have just hit the TED thing just right because my boyfriend and I used to go to those TED conferences in Monterey, and again, that was like the Antarctica thing. I thought, you know, I've been to those, and people actually don't get to go to them. It's like a very small group of people who actually goes to the TED conference, but we, we've been there, and I just thought, just kind of to be smart and interesting, you should you should write about these things that are kind of unique to you, you know, and so. So I and so I thought that that would be a an interesting thing that this guy had a TED talk, and so then when I asked my Microsoft friend when I was I was out there and I was just saying like okay so this guy is gonna have, give a TED talk you know so what would he be what would you know he'd say he'd be an engineer what level would he be the level seventy three SVP you know and I was just quickly furious just furiously writing down everything he said all the jargon and stuff you know and he. And then I would just ask him a lot of practical things about where would he eat lunch? How would he get to work? You know, where would he park? You know, and so I, and, and so this guy is now a good friend of mine, he and his wife and we're pals. And so he's, was really nice and reading over um, a draft of the book and making sure I had all the details right. Oh, cool. Okay. So, um, well, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, your writing career, because I think that you've written a lot for television and then now you're doing books. And I think there are a lot of people uh, who listen to this uh, show who uh, do one or the other. You know, a lot of people who I, I know who are writing books are thinking about trying to write for television. And I think I know some people who write for TV who are thinking about writing books. Like, yeah, seems, there seems to be some crossover. But like, can you discuss, mm -hmm. can you talk about, um, you know, how you got started as a writer and then how you got to this point where you're where you're now a novelist? Well, um, I, I think one of the biggest influences or 
is that my father was a, a writer, um, a screenwriter. His name was Lorenzo Semple Jr. and wrote a lot of movies. And so I grew up in a house with a writer, which, which I realize is 75% of the way there, which is that you realize that that's a job, you know, that you can do that as a job. And so I grew up, um, and, and my dad was successful, so it was a pretty glamorous. Um, he created Batman, uh, right? Didn't he write? Yeah, that? he created Batman, and he just yeah. We just ended up. I mean, glamorous to a kid where like Larry Hagman is coming over for dinner, or you know, <laughs> <laughs> like Major Nelson is over for dinner, or another one because my daughter's now liking um, Gilligan's Island is um, Jim Backus was a friend of theirs. So like when Sebastian, you know, uh, Howell would come over for dinner, that was very cool, you know. So so it was just kind of a funny um thurston howell thurston oh my gosh my daughter's outside the door listening she's just <laughs> it's not hilarious i just heard this old girl's voice it's thurston howell she said you thank go. you um and so and so um so i i knew that that was a really um um important uh, I, I, that, that writing, writing for TV and movies was like a job you could do. And it seemed like a fun job, you know, and then you want to impress your parents and stuff and get them to love you, you know, dot, dot, dot. So I wanted, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. And so in college, I, I wrote, um, a movie script and it sold to 20th Century Fox, just like a little bit of option money, you know, but it was enough for me to come out to LA and I kicked around for a long time. Um, and I think, I, I really think so much of my success had to do with the year that I was born and when I got out of college. Because at the time, in the mid-80s, they were just kind of giving these little development deals to people all over the place, you know, and you could make $30,000 a year, you know, which was plenty uh, in when you're 22 years old, you know, and you could get a little apartment and run around and go to El Coyote for dinner and, you know, just live a, a LA life. Um, and so I did that without a lot of success for several years, you know, but just would get kind of a uh, movie writing job once a year, just enough to kind of keep it, keep in the business. And then, um, and then I got a TV job. My first TV job was on 90210, um, that my friend Darren Starr just kind of gave me, you know, um, and and then I I, I went it, it it wasn't a good fit because I realized that I was more comedic you know that that drama thing just seemed like incredibly serious and stupid to me you know the way they all took it so seriously so then I went switched over to comedy and then again I I really I I feel like a lot of my success had to do with the fact that I was a woman at the in the year that I was writing I think that if you have a halfway decent personality and you're halfway funny. At the time when I was doing it, you could really work your way up the ladder really quickly, you know, which is what I did. And I guess I was good at it, but I, I don't think, I mean, I think I was like a B, let's say, as a TV writer. And so um, I, I, I had my career and then I, I always really wanted to become a novelist, you know, but I always felt like somebody else wrote novels and not people like me, you know, that smarter people are more educated. I just felt like there was this huge bridge between what I was doing and then like a novelist. Well, and, and, and just, to, just to pause for a second, like, you know, you, you've written for like a, quite a few shows. And like, I think the listeners would probably love to know that like, we're talking like Saturday Night Live, Mad About You, Arrested Development, 
uh, Ellen. Yes, yes. No, I work for big shows. I know. And I, I even the people I've worked with want to strangle me when I say I didn't think I was that good. They just they think that I was. But I, you know, was kind of on the inside. I just kind of felt like I wasn't I didn't feel like I was really great at it. It felt like the, the joke thing, you know, the the actual joke writing, which is what a lot of it is. I felt like I wasn't really I, I can't just come up with jokes, you know, and that I think I was really good with story and really good with character and very valuable to the process. But there was always that time um, on the stage, you know, on the Friday nights or whenever it was in front of the audience when a line isn't working and the actor comes over like in really heavy pancake makeup and walks over to the writers who were sitting there in the chairs and I was just like fuck we need to come up with another joke you know <laughs> they, they're gonna want another joke and I don't have another joke you know and and I, th- th- that's my main kind of memory of like shame and humiliation of the being a tv writer is just like we need another joke here and and there are a lot of people who just can fire off jokes off the top of their head, you know, when you quote unquote need a joke. And I never was able to do that. I would always, it would just, it was just the horrible dream of, you know, taking the test and, and, and not having not studied for it, you know, and it it still is a recurring nightmare for me is like actors coming over and needing jokes, you know, and then, and I, and like, I, I, I don't know the setup, you know, and then they're looking at me. It's, it's, it's awful thing. <laughs> That's yeah, a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, and and yeah, it was just oh, it's just awful. But so, so then, um, so then I just thought I'd write a novel, you know, and um, a couple people were instrumental. This novelist Bruce Wagner, do you know him? He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce is awesome. He's a really great writer, and um, he was a friend, and he just said, oh, you should write a novel. You'd you'd you're a really interesting person and that's all you need to write a novel is to be interesting. So you should do that. And, and he was the first person kind of who gave me permission, you know, to, to even think about it. And he just said, it's not that hard. It's just, it's just be interesting, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and, and, sit, and, and sit there day after day, you know, and yeah. yeah and sit, well, but see, you, you, you already know that is the thing is from being a TV writer. I mean, that's right. the one, another thing that it really taught me was that you work really, really, really hard as a TV writer. So it's not like this big shock, uh, turning to novels. I think for people who, who don't, haven't written anything that's sitting down and how long it takes to write a novel and how many hours are involved and how many drafts you do, I think would, would be a, a huge deterrent. And I think most people are not novelists who want to be novelists because they just can't deal with the amount of work you know but but tv writer man being tv writing i mean it's nothing if not hard work you know so so that i I think i was very lucky that way to have learned it learned the hard work of writing from television and so and so the like the work ethic aside were there any other adjustments that you had to make when you started to write fiction that surprised you you know or was it was it pretty seamless like once you actually made the emotional leap into it was the actual writing itself something that came easily to you or did it take a little while yeah you know it actually came easily i mean i felt like um my main thing is that i didn't want to have bad writing you know is is that's what i was worried about and i just thought if i just write in my voice and and don't try to get too fancy, you know, then it, it's it's like first do no harm, you know. I just didn't, it's like just don't, 
don't try to write well, quote unquote. You know what I mean? It's like, don't try to be like a good fancy writer. Don't just start like trying to come up with metaphors and similes. I mean, and I, I even think that there's, I, I think maybe there's, I've written four metaphors or similes <laughs> because I'm just like so afraid of, of having them be bad, you know? So I, I felt like just keep it real, you know, just keep it low key, tie it to what I know, tie it to what I observe and don't try to get too fancy with it, you know? And so that, that it wasn't as hard as it, as it might've been. Um, um, just for for that reason. And then what about uh you know coming around full circle like you know have either of your books been optioned do you have any plans to try to write screenplays for them you know like and capitalize on no, your the, experience? Yeah, no the first one is not optioned and the second one is is going to go out and I'm I'm imagining that it will be optioned and that I'm not um I it, it it's kind of a funny thing in fact I was talking to my agent about it um yesterday when we were he's now starting to send it out and stuff and and I actually think I'd be the best person to adapt the book because I think that I know it well and and I'm very talented as as a screenwriter but but I get that in Hollywood they're not going to want me to do it which is fine with me you know it's it's I I'm just kind of recognized like oh that's kind of funny because I'd be the best person to do it but I they're all into their A-list you know uh and if they want to, if anybody wants to buy the book and put someone on the A list to write it, it's fine with me. You know, I and I'm not really in any big hurry to get back into um, into it. I mean, I, I guess that I certainly don't want to be a movie writer because I'm not interested in movies, and that I can't be a TV writer because I don't live there. So it's kind of just not an option for me, which I'm very comfortable with. Okay, and then are you working on another book, or are you kind of just letting this one find its way into the world and giving yourself a, a break? Yeah, I'm giving myself, I'm going to give myself five years. That's my, um, that's my, uh, timetable. Cause I feel like you, you, you should only write a book when you're really in a lot of pain or something, you know, which is, <laughs> and, and, I, I, and I don't, I you know, cause I, the second one really came out of just huge amount of pain. And I feel like you need to be a different person before you write another book. And so I, I, I think that anything writing out of any other place is dangerous, you well, know? Yeah. And, I mean, another way of saying it is like, you, you, you shouldn't write a book unless you absolutely have to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Otherwise it, I think it comes out feeling a little flat. Like it has to be an urgent situation emotionally. And, uh, I think that, that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting cause I was just reading a book and it was, I, I loved, I loved, this guy's first book. And then I read a second book and I just, it, it wasn't great. And I just thought, you know, he, he didn't have a book in him and he wrote one anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I understand that economically, if you've written a book and it's done well and you have an advance for a second one and you need to write a book, you know? And, 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 um, so I, I understand why people do that, but but I'm really going to try to hold off unless something really terrible happens to me before five <laughs> years, which in some ways let's knock on wood, yeah, but, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah. Let's uh, here's hoping, you know, or yeah, if it's, uh, but, but right now I feel like I've adjusted to this phase of my life and until a new like weird thing happens or I grow in some way that I'm not foreseeing, you know, and I, and I also think you have to not, you can't force it. It just has to kind of happen. 
Well, Maria, I'll tell you, it's been great talking with you. I congratulate you on the book. It's wonderful. And uh, I wish you all the best with the tour and with the rollout. And, um, you know, good luck getting to the next book. I hope whatever anguish uh, you know, uh, causes the next book isn't too terrible. Well, thank you, Brad. This was so much fun. All right, you guys, there you go. That is it. That is the program. That is Maria Semple. So much fun to talk with her. Go get her novel. It is called Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It is available from Little Brown. You can find Maria on the web at mariasemple.com. She's also on the Facebook. This show, you will remember, has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy, if you want to follow me. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to send me an email for some reason, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Otherwise, uh, what do I have for you? It is August. We are in, uh, I believe, what is commonly referred to as the dog days of summer. It is hot. It is aggressive. It is smoldering. It is important to wear SPF 45 or higher and perhaps a hat with a visor. Please remember that Stephen Crane died of tuberculosis and that Wallace Stevens once worked as a newspaper reporter and was assigned to cover Stephen Crane's funeral. That is it for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I do appreciate it. Uh, I will be back again soon in roughly 72 hours with the next episode. Please prepare yourselves. Please enjoy the brief interregnum. Please tell your friends about this program. Please tell strangers whom you meet on the subway. Please at least once in the next 24 hours, do something unusual in public. Uh, I don't know what that might be, but just do it. Just try to do something deviant slash interesting slash funny slash, uh, you know what I mean. (laughs) 